Coming up next, fathers and sons, everybody's got them. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the booking. Jake's shaking his head. They don't have them. Well, Not everybody has sons. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a son. I've got a daughter, fathers and daughters. And actually, doesn't the, this book, yeah, well, doesn't this book better translate as fathers and children? I think I read if that If it somewhere. were the ESV, it would. Yeah. I don't know. Are you a Russian specialist? <laughs> yeah. You probably don't want to admit that right now. I am a Russian spe. Yeah. I'm a Russian specialist. Yeah, really. Well, we know. Have you guys, special uh, operative. Have you guys noticed spy. how stupid Ukraine is? That's my attempt at <laughs> sophisticated propaganda. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah, they're real stupid. Um, I'm reading the Red Will trilogy by Solzhenitsyn right now. It's pretty good. You would be reading the Red Will. Where, where there's a Red Will, there's a Red Way. Yeah. That's what I always say. Guess what? One of the main characters in the first few chapters of the novel meets Tolstoy. Oh. On his estate. How does Solzhenitsyn imagine Tolstoy? Pretty favorably. Solzhenitsyn was a pretty big fan of Tolstoy. Okay, good. Yeah, well, because he was kind of trying to do for nonfiction. I mean, he was... Yeah. Don't I, haven't I, don't I have it somewhere in my memory bank that Solzhenitsyn was trying to be Tolstoy for his sort of generation? Or Yeah, and the, like red, the Red Will is supposed to be his version of War and Peace. Right. Bringing Tolstoy's vast character drama to... The early days of World War One. Well, I got a scoff out of, out of Jake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice try, Solzy. <laughs> Don't we all wish we could be Tolstoy? I mean... Aren't we all I, writing I, our own war and peace? Yeah, you know, I think I'll write my war and peace. That's a good idea. I, yeah, I'm writing mine about the Iraq war. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, go ahead, swing big. Yeah. Might as well. Go big or go home, but also... Hey, I mean, the people on. that did the Lion King said they were doing like a Hamlet kind of thing. So so far, so far, it's actually it, is really by cool which they meant they ripped off the, they ripped off the plot, not that they were aspiring. By which they meant they had an evil uncle. I mean, they didn't even really rip off. <laughs> yeah, the, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it, he well, an evil uncle who kills dad and yeah, 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 and gets the gets mom right and creates trauma for the son. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to it, be it, to it, be fair to Solzhenitsyn, he was trying to pay homage to Tolstoy while still doing something new and so far it actually and dad is becomes a ghost well so far it is something that i would put in the far far future of things we should do on this podcast the red wells trilogy i think it's really the lion so king far. the lion king yes. yeah hamlet hamlet well ah shakespeare <laughs> listen wherefore art thou wherefore art thou shakespeare okay not on the best episodes of this podcast that's for sure oh, come on we we try so hard but we can't rise above it. I'm not going to defend my approach to Shakespeare. Don't know no what it is about, it is about those Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's plays, but I like them. I love them. I want some more of them. <laughs> hey, I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. Joe, Joe Diffie or something like that. Sonnet, but I like them. I love them. That's better. I want some more of them. <laughs> That's Brandon. He's the contextual Texan. He's the PhD <laughs> AVD. He's the baller who's a scholar of Mahler. He loves the composer Mahler, I think. I actually kind of do like Mahler. I yeah. can't stand Mahler. Like, write a melody, dude. The people who, wow. I, I don't really. Yeah, that's what I really love. People who love and are all about Mahler tend to have something wrong with them. It doesn't mean that I you. I never said I was all about Mahler. I didn't I say that said, you were. I, ew, I, I think man. you can appreciate Mahler. That's one thing. But there are, there's like a category of people that are like, 
Mauler is the best. Right. And it's like, yes. there's something broken and wrong about right. this. Every Same one of people those people who would say that about Dostoevsky. Yeah, they're reading Dostoevsky. Exactly. And they're, they're cats. their cats are urinating on their carpet that they don't send outside because their house Yikes. is full of cats. True. In fact... <laughs> Wow. But, like but we're talking about the same person now. <laughs> you guys know someone here. <laughs> we do. I didn't know that we had that crossover. <laughs> I, I think it's far enough removed and no one will guess. So I can say on the podcast that I was uh, set up on a date with that person. Anyway, uh, guys, let's... Before your time. Before, yeah. Before... Oh, was she... Yeah. Before my yeah. time, it was before I was born, someone <laughs> had set me up on a date with that person. We still haven't introduced Jake. He's the pastor who's a master of reading. What's up, guys? How are you doing? <laughs> it's good to be back. It's good to be on our monthly schedule. It's good to be, uh, be have Brandon here. He did not join oh, us for man. Bridge to Terabithia. Oh, man. You I have... missed you on that podcast, Brandon. I missed I did. making you suffer on, man, Bridge to Terabithia and Little Prince. Have you read either one of those, Brandon? me yeah <laughs> yeah i've read i've read the little prince what do you think <laughs> classic oh, huh man it's a classic <laughs> classic of pedophilia <laughs> and, uh, yep my favorite pedophilia book <laughs> yeah that's no, right up there <sighs> anyway guys we're not here to talk about the little prince we're here to talk about fathers and arguably sons and let's do it let's let's go into a little section i call the contextual texan it's where you know, we need context on this work. We need some much-needed context on the work of Fathers and Sons by Ivan Tur. I was trying to figure this out yesterday. I think it's Turgenev. Is that how you I say it so. in English? That's how I've always Turgenev. said it. Not the soft Turgenev. G, but it's hard, oh, Jake, hard. You sound like you know Russian, too. Yeah. we got to really be careful that we don't come too sympathetic. We have a couple Russian bots here. Yeah. I mean, whole university programs are canceling their Russian literature department, so... Oh, so like a singer was fired from the Metropolitan, whatever you call it, from I the mean, Met. The, Ch- Tchaikovsky's being canceled. Dostoevsky's being canceled. Can- Dostoevsky, of course, has always deserved to be canceled, but... Not for this. Not for this, yeah. So, I don't know, is Turgenev being canceled? I mean, maybe we shouldn't be doing them right now. Maybe we are being We're going to get ourselves canceled because we read a Russian novel last year. Sorry, Zelensky. I'm not sorry, Zelensky. Sorry, not sorry, <laughs> Zelensky. Guys, listen, Contextual Texan, it's the part of the show where Brandon is from Texas, and he provides some much-needed context on this work. And so, Brandon, take it away. Yeah. Give us some content. Oh, you also give us a hail and hearty yeehaw, though. Yeehaw! Was that hail and hearty? Yeah, it was hail and hearty enough. I mean, it wasn't the hailest and heartiest we've ever seen, but... I think that from now on, my yeehaws are going to gauge my level of enthusiasm for the context I'm about to give. Oh, interesting. So, so not, not like, so if you, do <laughs> you mean like if you've prepared a really crappy context? No, no, no. In other words, so if I had done it for last, if I had been on the last episode of it, we're like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. But for Dickens, on the other hand, it's going to be, yeehaw! Got it? Yep. Got it. Got and it. Get it, got it good. you can't even imagine. Did you guys hear about the event that shook the houses down in our area i did hear about that i heard about it they think it was a meteor now crashing wow fascinating stuff anyways that sort of decibel level if you can imagine my ability to do that would be my enthusiasm for tolstoy we should just tell the listeners Hmm. because that's because it's interesting a meteor i guess it was a meteor there's a big boom in brandon's area 
and it shook and houses it like in three a four county, yeah, four, four county counties. area. Shook houses. It registered on the seismic scale at IU. They they people were very the, concerned about there. There's a there's a naval base very close by Colcrane Naval Base where they manufacture arms and munitions and all kinds of top secret things that nobody's supposed to know about. And so people were concerned that something had happened there. There's also a military uh, training camp close by. They were concerned that there might have been an accident mm-hmm. there with munitions, Camp Atterbury. But apparently... It was just it, a meteor. It was aliens. They think it was a meteor. Right, comrades? That's, that's what they would say, right? Yeah. If it but was aliens, that's People what they saw would a say. fireball across the sky. Yeah, I think it was aliens. You know, you know, I watched for like the first five hours on Twitter and Reddit just to see... And not a single person mentioned a fireball. You just I sat don't there believe and watched, it. You just sat there and watched Twitter for five. That's hours. all I did. Yeah, I did nothing else. My life oh. is pretty lame and boring. So you ever seen? Uh, and I have a lot King, of free time King on of the my hill? Yeah, yeah, I have seen King of the Hill. Dell Gribble. <laughs> <laughs> he would have done the same thing. So apparently, you're the Dell Gribble of this podcast. <laughs> I mean, if you guys want to have a lot of time on your hands to just sit and look at Reddit and Twitter, just become well, a pastor. That's what I say. We don't do it. We work one day a week. So. Well, and uh, start has a media ministry. To do the money just life. comes comes pouring in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all easy. You just yeah. watch movies, Super read simple. books, talk about watch them. movies, read books, talk theorists. about. What'd you say? Become a terrorist. Conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Oh, a be, a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Yeah. The explosion was I mean, actually why not? caused by Jake. <laughs> I mean, as a conservative Christian pastor, you're already basically a terrorist. So I mean, that's what they say. You're on somebody's so watch list. I mean, I'm on a list somewhere. Right. Yeah, we are surely on somebody's watch list. You're on my watch list, Jake. <laughs> you know who else was on a watch heart. list? Who? Uh-huh. Terrigenif. Yeah, he went to prison or something. <laughs> he was put under Great house transition. arrest. <laughs> he sure was because he lived under the oppressive political regime of Nicholas the First. Boo. We've talked about him because he is ostensibly, ostensibly in the sense of this is probably what happened to Pierre Bezuhov, is that he died in the December Revolution. Nikolai Nicholas, he was known for an extremely oppressive regime. And coming out of Alexander I's rule, you had a group of fairly wealthy landlords who had progressive ideas of how they should treat their serfs. And so these became the liberals of Nikolai I's regime that he would then try to censor and oppress. And Turgenev was actually a part of this group. So just a little bit of background on him. Like most, except for Dostoevsky, like most of the Russian intelligentsia members of the time who became famous novelists, he was born to extraordinary wealth. His father came from a long line of landed gentry and his mother from an even longer line. And when her uncle, I believe, died, she inherited a vast amount of money. And so they had all they ever needed. And he was, he was given the best education. He learned French and German. He was sent to the best schools. He had enough money that he could go to Germany actually and get his master's degree in, I think, like philosophy and studied Hegel. And so, I mean, he was, he was on the cutting edge of what would have been seen as the intelligentsia of the time. A couple things about his background that I do think are important for this novel. His father was apparently fairly absent throughout his childhood, which he held against his father for a while. He was actually pretty sad about that. And then his dad died when he was fairly young of kidney stone disease. 
And so not only was his father not there much, he also died when he was like maybe in his late teens, early 20s. And so I think that definitely play has an effect on this book because the relationship between the fathers and the sons, especially between, is it Nikolai and Arkady, right? Yeah. They have a fairly good relationship, except Bazarov then comes in and interferes with that. And so, mm -hmm. with this book, we have two sets of relationships between fathers and sons, and I'm sure we're going to talk all about that. So, so there is that background to him. But yeah, so he came back to Russia and became a part of sort of the intelligentsia movement. He became a f more prominent member of that in the early f 1850s when he wrote a book on the serfs, which became pretty popular at the time. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky would both point to that as they admired that because of its depictions of nature. And so he was known for being a very descriptive writer and rose in prominence because of that book. Don't some people kind of point to that book as a Uncle Tom's Cabin style, or maybe not quite that much, but it actually influenced people's view and led to the, helped lead to the emancipation of the serfs? Definitely. And so after Nikolai I lost his, after his death in the mid-1850s, Alexander II would come and he was called the Great Liberator and he would free the serfs. And a lot of people pointed to that book as one of the reasons, a motivator, something that affected cultural change. And so to that extent, he was a lot like Dickens, more than Tolstoy Dostoevsky, his writing had a direct effect on politics. And we can talk about why we think that might be the case. He was put under house arrest for a little while. He was put under house arrest for a while because of his opinions by Nikolai, who was known for being extraordinarily oppressive to the intelligentsia. And so he did suffer for his beliefs, you know, and he, and like others, he also fled and spent a good amount of time in Europe. And this actually led to some strain between him and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, because they held it against him that he left the motherland to go live in Europe and to kind of side with European values. But it's that background that really affects the... So, the fathers and sons in this book, they represent two different worlds, right? You have Generation X followed by Generation Z, and Generation X believes in the European values. Pavel especially holds to this sort of British principle, right? That we can improve the world through uh, politics and through philosophy and through literature and through poetry. And there's this sort of romanticism and hopefulness in the way that they approach the world. And they're kind of represented by the fathers, right? And so, they would be the old liberalism that actually Turgenev would have, himself would have been a part of in Russia. And I think Tolstoy would have been a part of it and Dostoevsky to an extent. Bazarov represents a completely new breed of liberalism. I guess one way to think about it would actually be the divide between like a Joe Biden and then the, what, what's her name? The crazy one? Kamala AOC. Harris? Oh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the divide between their two brands of liberalism. And I think it actually is a pretty good way of thinking about this. So, there was a new school of thought that was coming around because of Hegelianism in German in Germany that was that influenced Russian intellectuals. And this was what we call Russian nihilism. And Bazarov is a representative of Russian nihilism. And 
he was inspired by several characters in uh, Turgenev's own life, but especially this young doctor that he met when he was in, I believe he was in England, and he met this person, and in his journals, he said that he doesn't believe that this type of character had ever been represented fairly in literature before. And so, he wanted to fairly represent this type of character in literature. Hmm. And what this person also just so happens to represent is this kind of new brand of liberalism that was rising in Russia at the time, which was a reaction to Turgenev's own brand of liberalism. And so, the principles of this are that through a commitment to science, through a rejection of romantic feeling, and through utilitarianism, really, we can reject all the old ideas, and through that rejection and through their destruction, create a new society that will be more just and fair. And so, I think that's really important to understand that as what they were doing with nihilism, because when we think of nihilism today, we think of Nietzsche, right? We think of rejection of all morals, rejection of all codes, but that's really more like existential nihilism. Russian nihilism was very more, much more political, and you can see how it would provide the background for the sort of reactionary revolutionary, re- revolutionary thought that would accept Marxism and then would lead to 1916 and the, the whole communist revolution, right? Because the seeds are already there. These people saw a failure in the romantic commitments of Turgenev and his brand of liberalism, and they wanted to completely do away with them so that the new society could come in. And that's what Bazarov is supposed to represent. Mm. And so, in other words, this was a... This novel really does kind of capture a moment in time where you see this transition from Turgenev's commitments to the commitments that are embodied by Bazarov. So, yeah. Wow. I don't know where I really want to go from there, guys. <laughs> kind of think that... Do you have questions to help clarify things or... I, I have a piece that I found on the internet about the relationship of Tolstoy and Turgenev that I'd like to yeah, read Yeah, why don't you read that point, but while I gather some... Make sure I've touched on everything I want to touch on. That's really the big thing that I wanted to point out was one, his relation to his father and two, his relation to the intellectual sons that came after. Does it make sense? Yeah. Because uh, that's I think those are the two really big contextual pieces you need to understand what this novel's trying to do. Well, I, okay, I have a few questions. I understand his relationship with his mother was fraught. I, yeah. I I saw some things that made her sound like a real monster. And I couldn't I couldn't decide whether she was actually a monster or just a aristocrat of the type that we want to label as a monster. Now, I saw people try to make psychosexual connections between his relationship with his mother and the way that he portrays strong women, the way that the woman kind of casts off Bazarov in the novel. I, I saw a lot of ink spilled on that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I didn't actually see any of the psychosexual stuff, but that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, I, similar to what came out with, oh, when we read, oh, what was his name? Forster, right? Right. And there was more legitimate claims towards that with him. But I do know that his mother was very authoritarian and that she kind of ruled over his life so that he felt relief when he was finally able to get out from under her thumb and go to Europe mm-hmm. and uh, get his education there. And she ruled her estate in a very similar way. And so, I think that that influenced his politics. Right. Kind of rejecting her, the absent father figure. And instead of becoming obsessed with his mother, he instead kind of rejected her. 
Right. Right. Well, a couple things to point out while he went, well, just at least one thing that he did become. So early on, you know, he, with his earliest novels, they actually weren't that early. He published in 34. So around our age was when he was first starting to become a writer. He got involved because of his, who he was, his money and his intellectual commitments. He became involved with realism early on. And one of his closest friends is Gustave Flaubert in France. And they <laughs> saw each other as having fairly similar commitments. Mm. And so I think that that drive towards realism really affected his novels. And I think it was Tolstoy actually that was kind of disappointed that he didn't take more of a philosophical and overtly political approach. Instead, he tried to just be more almost journalistic in his style, right? Let me see where I saw that. A few things up here. So I think there was a quote that I had in mind. But speaking of Tolstoy, if you want to go ahead and mention what you have while I look for this. Yeah, let me just read from an article um, that I need to pull up. Okay, here it is. So he shared similar and aesthetic ideas to Flaubert. Both rejected extremism, extremist right and left political views, and carried a non-judgmental, although rather pessimistic view of the world. He was considered to be an agnostic and did not have the same religious motives in his writing that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky had. So this is from a website called A Russian Affair. I'm just going to read it because they have a nice summary of the relationship between Tolstoy and Turgenev, which was, of course, one of the major questions in my mind. Uh, Quote, they had a love-hate relationship that started with more or less the same touching letter from Turgenev. In, in 1855, he wrote to Tolstoy, who was at the time fighting at the front in the Crimean War, so Tolstoy's a little bit younger, and who had already published Childhood and Boyhood, the following lines. So Turgenev, slightly older, slightly more established, writes this to, to Tolstoy. Quote, enough, there's a limit to everything. You have proved that you are no coward, but your instrument is the pen and not the saber. Tolstoy took those words to heart. He admired Turgenev immensely, and not much later, stood on his doorstep in St. Petersburg. The writers embraced each other in Russian style, and Tolstoy stayed for a month. When the poet Fett came to visit Turgenev late one morning, he asked whose gleaming saber it was that he saw in the hall and was told it belonged to Count Tolstoy. Count Tolstoy had been up all night with the gypsies. Gypsy singers were quite popular at the time in Russia, and was still asleep in the next room. Fett and Turgenev spent the first hour whispering to each other. Soon, however, it became clear that they, that being Tol Tolstoy and Turgenev, didn't have much in common. Turgenev thought Tolstoy was wildly jealous and extremely stubborn. Tolstoy called Turgenev a bore and could not understand that he, who was much wealthier, was an advocate of the emancipation of the serfs. Nonetheless, both writers expressed their love for each other. Tolstoy, in a diary, I think, Turgenev has left. I am sad. I feel that I have grown to love him dearly. Even though we argued all the time, I am terribly bored without him. Uh, Turgenev, friends in the sense of Rousseau, we will never be, but we can still love each other and be happy for each other's success. In May 1861, Tolstoy stayed with Turgenev at Spaskoy. There, a fight about Turgenev's daughter, Paulette, got so out of hand that Tolstoy challenged Turgenev to a duel. In the heat of the moment, letters with apologies were sent to the wrong address, but it was eventually called off. Luckily, just imagine them killing each other. They did make peace, but there was no contact for 17 years. In 1883, Turgenev wrote Tolstoy, who was at the moment fanatically religious, from his deathbed, from Turgenev's deathbed in France. Turgenev writes, My friend, return to literary activity. Oh, how happy I would be if I could think that my request makes an impact on you. I can't walk. I can't eat. I can't sleep. 
But so what? My friend, great writer of the Russian land, heed my request. That's the that's the that's interesting the quote. Yep. Are they interesting part? Yeah, that's the Yeah. So from his deathbed, Turgenev was like, I gotta get Tolstoy writing again. And Tolstoy was like, I'm too busy being a crazy religious fanatic to ever write anything good again. Yep. All right. Well, yeah, and, and the modern opinion of Turgenev, I think, definitely has put him in a place beneath Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Right? Sure. In fact, Nabokov, who wrote a lot of criticism, put him fourth. This is actually interesting. His best, the best, the, his ranking of the Russian novelists is Tolstoy, then Gogol, then Chekhov. Then Turgenev, then Dostoevsky. <laughs> Which is really interesting, because a lot of times I find myself agreeing with Nabokov, even though I have very mixed feelings about his work. He, he was a big defender of Dickens, actually. And so, and I kind of think that I might agree with that ranking. I mean, this book is fine. This book is good. I liked it. But it definitely lacks, there's something lacking. And... One thing I read says that one, some of the criticisms of Turgenev was that when he writes, he never really tried to remove himself from his writing. So, he was never really a successful realist. Hmm. He's always kind of there in his work. And so, that some of his dialogue, some of his representation of characters can seem a little bit contrived because it seems a little bit like he's trying to get a point across, mm -hmm. you know, and which would, which is fine. I mean, if that's what you're trying to do, but... For someone who is Comes so committed, cost. yeah, someone who's so committed to realism, it, it's a little bit jarring. Uh, you expect every Dostoevsky character to speak like Dostoevsky. Yep, that's just what you're paying for. And when Tolstoy wants a character to speak like him, he just puts himself into the book as either a Pierre or a Levin. <laughs> but <laughs> so, anyways, that's something also to keep in mind as we get into the discussion. But. For those who don't really know much about realism, it might be good to have just a little bit of background on that. Yeah. As a literary form, realism was a reaction to the sort of romanticism of the Victorian age and also to the eccentricities of like a Dickens, his style. And so, realism was supposed to be spare and it was supposed to just be kind of a calculated scientific look at the world. And that way, it was an art form that probably Bazarov could have been okay with. In other words, it was, it's like proto-journalism. It was trying to just say, here's the world, here's what it looks like, and kind of remove the author from that perspective and just give it to you straight. And it was definitely philosophically motivated with the, with the German school of philosophy and the uh, scientific revolutions that were happening where observation became very, very much important, very very important, right? And so, it's interesting that we have this novel that's an attempt at realism, and its hero is a nihilist, but who is a nihilist because he really wants that sort of scientific coldness and approach towards life. And that's not, I'm not trying to argue that realism is a cold form of literature. That's not true. Tolstoy was technically a realist as well. But I think Turgenev, in his commitments, in his attempt at being a dispassionate observer in his attempt to not judge. Like, you don't really feel that he's judging either Arkady or Bazarov with this novel, right? Yeah. Though you do, I do get the sense that he sympathizes more with Bazarov in the end. I'm just not sure because that that's how I felt. Just because of that last paragraph, right? The lonely, 
the lonely tomb on the hillside. Sure. And, and it may be that it's disjarring the fact that that's there. But anyways, I don't know. I think that that's, I think that's enough context. Well, I mean, going. I mean, just a little commentary. I, if the more dispassionate an author feels, the more they try to separate themselves, uh, the less they feel like they care. And therefore the less I care. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way that this book felt to me. It's like, I don't see why you care about this story and I don't care very much either, but we'll get there, I guess. Yeah. I, I have trouble with the notion of realism because I'm not sure I've ever met the author that I think actually achieves it, achieves it. I mean, you mentioned Flaubert. I don't think Madame Bovary achieves any kind of objective. I mean, Madame Bovary is scornful in the way that it portrays the, the the pharmacist and some of the, some of the characters and yeah like, like it's he definitely has a point of view and i don't know to me this novel comes about as close as anything i could name off the top of my head to sort of acting dispassionate but i don't know that it actually achieves that and i don't know that it's a worthwhile i mean what is like okay people would say war and peace or anna karenin are the great realist novels and i suppose just in evoking a complete world and putting you in the head of every character, including the horse. Yeah, you could call him a realist, but he certainly has a moral point, a worldview. Tolstoy is not a dispassionate observer. He's a very passionate and very accurate observer, I think. <laughs> so I'm just not sure. Like, what is what is the great realist novel, Brandon, that that really just does it? That just captures That's, that sense? That, the stranger. Just, yeah, the stranger. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the most successful of all the realist novels would be either War and Peace or Anna Karenina. Yeah. But I do think that realism itself, I mean, you have like Christopher Isherwood's Berlin stories, which was kind of a revitalization of realism in the sense that you can be dispassionate observer, right? But I think realism as an art form is just really interesting because what you see is always this tension between the attempt at being a realist and the inevitability that the author is going to enter his story. Right. Because the author has to make choices about who he focuses on, why he focuses on them, what he allows to happen in the story. There's just no way to really be a realist. Right. Right. Yeah, I think it's that's just all I'm you, Yeah, the author is always going to be a part of the story. And so I think realism was fine, but realism also, well. Well, part it's of it, like it's a, a faulty premise. There is no dispassionate observer of the universe. There's exactly. a God in heaven. And he has a perspective on everything. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so the whole concept is bogus. I mean, insofar in, in as it sense. evokes a certain sort of, I'm just going to put you on that horse in that contest with Vronsky. Sure. I, I get that. I get that Tolstoy is much more close to the ground in his observations than, say, uh, Jane Austen, who's cutting out everything but the dialogue and the relationship stuff. But. I mean, Anna Karenin is a perfect example. It starts with that epitaph, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that hangs over the whole novel and it forms what he and chooses to portray. And the, we, we don't have a dispassionate observer. Anyway, guys, let's go into, it sounds like we all have some baggage. And what's that sound? It's the baggage plane coming over. Yes, it continues to be not just an airplane that reminds me of the notion of baggage. But at some point, it has transformed in the, seri- in, the, in the show into a baggage plane, whatever that is. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's a thing that reminds us 
of the fact that we all have baggage and it's important because there is no such thing as a dispassionate observer. There's no such thing as a dispassionate <laughs> podcaster. So it's important to know what the baggage is, what the authorial intent is. No death of the author here. And so it makes it makes plain the fact that there's baggage. <laughs> yes, Brandon, you card. Why don't you tell us your baggage, my friend, with some of your patented uh, wit and whimsy that you just used? Uh, I don't know if I can be too wit and whimsical about the baggage, but uh, I read Turgenev because I really got into Russian writers late in my teenage years because of Tolstoy. Sure. And so the first time I read Fathers and Sons was a cheap little copy that I found in a half-price books. And I enjoyed it. And then I read it again when I was an undergraduate, just because I remembered enjoying it. And I was ha doing some classes on philosophy and was interested in going and getting his take again on nihilism because, well, I guess it's important to add as just a little addendum to context that this novel really popularized that term nihilism. It, it wasn't really a part of the popular lexicon until this book. And so... Even though we understand nihilism very differently today, the term came into vogue because of this book. And so, yeah, I thought it was interesting and wanted to go back. And I think a little bit of the magic was gone the second time. Mm. And we'll talk a bit about whether the magic was still there at all this time. The love is gone. Yeah. Just like that song from the most versions of that movie. Yeah, I think they restored it on Disney+. Plus. They talked about restoring it on yeah. Disney+. Plus. That's, of course, yeah. the famous love song from The Muppets Christmas Carol. Well, I'll get my baggage real quick. I have read this novel before and really liked it the first time, found it pretty insightful and fairly moving. It's entirely possible that the magic was gone on the second reading, and I guess we'll have to try and account for that, should that be the case. I, I mean, I'm always looking for... The next Tolstoy, I think that's probably what drew me to this novel in the first place. Like, I don't like Dostoevsky. I do Tolstoy's. Obviously, the greatest writer of all time. Who can I find that is doing anything similar? I do like Russian literature in general. And so, I give this one a shot. But yeah, I think that's, that's just about all my baggage. Jake? Similar. I had never read this before. But if there is a hope of finding somebody who touches Tolstoy, I'm here for it. So I came to the novel excited and hopeful. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like I I didn't set any expectation that we were going to live up to Tolstoy here. This must be Tolstoy or I hate it. Right. Yeah. It was just like, oh man, this fell, this wasn't even, I just didn't care. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, it's not a bad, it's not bad. It's just, just didn't care no, about it's it. It's not bad. Well, we're about to go into the big picture. There is actually one other it's piece of context. nothing to actively hate. There's just nothing to love. Well, he doesn't seem to. Anyway, we'll get to it in a second. I, I, I just remembered one other piece of interesting context that I came across, which is this is another in our litany of writers who never married, had an affair. Oh, yeah. And had a woman that he sort of followed around his whole life and had a weird platonic you, relationship. You mean he had an affair? So he was with a married woman? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, there's two separate things. Number one, he impregnated a serf, this great man yes. of the people, oh. and fa fathered a daughter through her. Number two, like, I, I'm not pulling who they are, but I know this is a reoccurring theme throughout our contexts. He had some woman that was like the ideal woman of his life. I think she was an opera singer or something like that, Brandon. And he just kind of 
followed her around and wrote her letters and they had this weird we think non-sexual relationship yep so i don't know if there's yeah a, i don't know if there's he anything lived else. in paris right in uh, in uh, baden baden right for a long time right next to her because like you said he had this strange platonic relationship with her who are the other people that we've talked about that, that i know that's cropped up more than once on the booking well c.s lewis had that platonic relationship c.s lewis i suppose is one of them I think one of those early Willa Edwardian, Cather. yeah, Willa Cather, yeah, kind of that. I think either E.M. Forrester maybe had something like that. Ah, ah, our our listeners know, they remember, but it's just one of those weird things. I guess Dante famously had his Beatrice, but we're not. Yeah. We, we've never read Paradise Lost, which is kind of weird. I wonder why we've never read Paradise Lost. And that's not me being sarcastic. I'm genuinely wondering why we never got to that. All right, guys, what? what's that sound? It's a poem than it is a. It's a poem. Yeah. Yeah, we don't read poems. Blank verse. Yeah, we, read, we read the Odyssey. That's we, true. Did we read Beowulf? We read Beowulf. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Par- we did Beowulf. Remember, Paradise Lost. It's kind of the big poem that we haven't done. <laughs> what's that sound? It's cameras clicking, bringing us into the big picture guys what are your overall general thoughts i think we've already kind of got there ahead of ourselves but how did this novel strike you generally speaking well it's interesting to see what you're going to do with this episode of the podcast nathan because here's kind of how it struck me enjoyable but a little bit thin Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i was wondering how is nathan going to get two and a half hours out of this thing (laughs) Maybe I won't, but the By hopes. Yeah, creating a bunch of different segments. That <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, like the big picture. He's, he's also <laughs> probably not going to try to pull teeth with it. No, um, I'm not yeah. going to try to pull teeth. Can, no. this, this episode goes as long as it needs to go. I want to give people yeah. lots of good content, but you know, this this it's book gotta only, be good. Only, this good book only provided so much inspiration, but 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 we haven't thoroughly drained the. No, we haven't, and so. Here's what I think. I think that those critics who accuse him of getting in the way sometimes of his story, I kind of agree with. I think that he didn't completely knock. I think that the big failure of this book is Bazarov, Hmm. that he didn't quite convince me that I needed to care about this guy and that other people would really find him as fascinating as they do. Can I I make a counter argument? Yeah. Maybe we are so far downstream of this that we just have no conception of how revolutionary the figure of Bazarov was. We we have seen so many of these kind of existential heroes or anti-heroes, doom and gloom kind of guys. It's such an archetype for us that uh-huh. Bazarov, the original, the mold from which they're all taken, are, it, it seems kind of like, oh, okay, when are you going to do something with this? Yeah, I mean, that that's probably true, actually. Because he kind of comes across as a James Dean, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he's not even described, though, as being handsome. What's In fact, isn't he kind of described as not all that handsome? But what's, what's fascinating about him is sort of this bad boy, I don't care about society attitude, right? Yeah. And that's supposed to make him attractive so that Grushenka is in love with him and Odinsova is in love with him and all the girls are just fascinated by this guy. And here I am thinking, well, he's a scientist, right? <laughs> Trying to imagine that being the sort of James Dean character nowadays is it is kind of absurd. And you must, and I think you're partly, I think that's partly the reason is that 
are James Dean guys or James Dean for different reasons. Well, one thing to say. But, well, for example, like, but Tolstoy has Anatole in uh, War and Peace. He is a James Dean kind of character, right? Mm-hmm. He comes in and sweeps Natasha off her feet and causes all sorts of problems. But he was like a well-to-do soldier bad boy. Right. Not a scientist. <laughs> it's just weird. I, there was this disconnect, and maybe it's just because I'm not seeing it the right way. Maybe this really would have been that that sort of confidence, because he is confident. Mm-hmm. He does have that. And so maybe maybe Turgenev saw something that I just can't see. I don't know. I mean, this novel was pretty controversial and like a big deal when it came out in, in almost a bad way. Didn't, ever, what, didn't everybody kind of hate it? Because they hated yeah, the figure of well, Bazarov. It's like even, even Dost- yeah, people did hate it. It was kind of controversial. But like even Dostoevsky, I think, in The Brothers Karamazov got it more right. Because Nikolai, or not, was that his name? The brother, the, I get the romantic up. brother. Yeah, probably. He was the one that all the women loved. Kind of the bad boy. He would drive up on a motorcycle, quote poetry and all that wild stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. The one who would go out and throw all the parties. And Ivan was closer to the Bazarov character. And he definitely wasn't, uh, he wasn't the town hottie. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's a compliment to Turgenev. Maybe he's just such a realist that he's like, here's your existential anti-hero. He kind of sucks. Like, he's actually not that cool. And I'm not going to make him but, that cool for you. But there's something that is still attractive and interesting about him. Well, apparently we didn't think so. Well, I think that for for it to be successful, then you have you have to either is there anything admirable about Oldentsova, the woman character, for her to actually kind of fall for this guy? Yeah, no. The answer is no. <laughs> Pretty sure. Agreed. But, but does Turgenev want us to think there is? See, that's the thing. Is I I do kind of think he does. Are you well, your argument is based on the final rather moving scene where she comes and visits him and he dies, and it's it actually yeah. feels like a bit of drama. But everything else is just, he's an idiot falling in love with this woman who's never going to like him. And indeed, she doesn't. What a story. Yeah. I mean, am I missing? See, because miss- like at the beginning of this book, I like, I, I could have liked a story that was more focused on Nikolai and Arkady and Pavel. Yes. Yeah. Same. I think the big interruption to this story is Bazarov and the fact that the focus tries to be on him because I just don't find him interesting as a character. Hmm. Yeah, and you don't really, like, if you're supposed to feel like there was some big loss to the world or something like that by Bazarov's <laughs> death, I mean, come on. Yeah. I'm laughing at the very idea that there was some big loss to the world. But is that what Turgenev wants us to think? I mean, Turgenev, I think, just wants to, I don't know. But so I know that we have listeners out there right now who really wish, and I hope that people do kind of, where would they interact with us? On Patreon? On Facebook? They're welcome to interact with us on any of those places. Like, there are some people who really enjoyed this book, right? And I remember as a teenager really enjoying this book, and I, and I liked Bazarov. But I think that, so what I'm coming to terms with is the fact that now in my mid-30s, uh, maybe I'm more of a father at this point. And Bazarov is just, I'm like Pavel. I, I just kind of want to tell this kid to shut up and get over himself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think even in my first reading, which was only a couple of years ago, that I liked Bazarov that much. I think I liked the urbane observations of Turgenev. I liked the way that yeah. he saw the world. I thought it was interesting. I thought he had some sort of fun little aphorisms and it was it was intriguing. 
mildly intriguing, yeah. but it's not like this was ever a favorite of mine, but. And then you have to like, so Bazarov doesn't die expecting that his worldview is the one that's going to win. Right. Right. He dies in obscurity. So there is that as well. And so I don't, I don't, I think that I was wrong in saying that I think Turgenev is completely sympathetic to his ideas. Yeah, although historically, he more or less wins. I do think that Turgenev is sympathetic to Bazarov as a person. So that could change. Maybe he is successful then because, I mean, if I am more in that category of Pavel now, then of course I'm going to have that reaction to Bazarov, right? Yeah, true. (laughs) Maybe I'm arguing my way back into thinking this novel does what it's supposed to do. Unless you guys... I mean, if I was going to... This is big picture, right? This is big picture. Yeah. So big picture... He has successfully backed me into a corner with Nikolai and Pavel. I mean, if... if Arkady's, Arkady's always a father. He just wishes that he was a Bazarov, right? Right. But he's not going to be. So, really, what this novel is about are people who are comfortable in their life, and they allow their ideas to only push them so far to where that discomfort begins, and then they pull back, right? Mm-hmm. Versus those people who are so committed to their ideas that they're willing to just completely commit themselves to that ideal, even if it leads to asceticism and death. Which he's got a much more considered take on than the histrionics of Dostoevsky. So Yeah, he definitely doesn't try to make a saint out of Bazarov. He just tries to make us realize that we shouldn't outright hate Bazarov. Well, I guess the way I would cast it is if if we have our three Russian like reporters who are reporting from the battlefield of the soul. Tolstoy is the one who makes you feel the sweat and the sounds and the smoke, and he gets you so close that you're getting splattered with blood, but but you never get yeah. killed. Dostoevsky just charges into the, the battlefield of the soul and gets blown up, and <laughs> he's an idiot. And there's guts everywhere. Right? <laughs> there's just guts <laughs> everywhere. And then Turgenev <laughs> is just like, allow me to... Urbanely and accurately describe the battlefield of the soul. He's like Pierre wandering through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The battlefield. <laughs> He'll sit on Some the back fat of the and just sort of stare like, what is going on? How did I end up here? <laughs> and at the end of the day, Tolstoy got blown up. Or no, sorry. Dostoevsky got blown up, so he's of no use to us. Tol- Tolstoy yeah. got so excited by the battle that he grabbed a saber and started cutting people to pieces. And he he's is a- Prince Andre. He ends up dead. Right. But gloriously dead but gloriously dead and we learned something and yeah turgenev is just like <laughs> oh look at that <laughs> i got some blood on my couch yes. sometimes people <laughs> die sometimes people live what an interesting drama it is yeah and actually so remembering a <laughs> I, bit I love about this characterization this is my favorite i think this wins <laughs> And remembering back over the novel, so some of the high points is where where you actually see the literal ten- conflict between father and son when Pavel and, who's a, not a father technically, but he represents the fathers, when pa- Pavel and Bazarov duel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bazarov kind of unwillingly goes into it, but realizes he needs to because of Pavel's principle. And that's kind of a transition for Bazarov where you realize, okay, all right, so here we go. Right. So, remembering back on that, I think that in that moment, Turgenev actually has more sympathy for Pavel than Bazarov, but he also has sympathy because for Bazarov because he's beginning to show us that no matter how much the nihilist wants to escape his feelings, mm-hmm. he can't. If there's all that he might try to repress it and take advantage of women and all this because of, but there's something deeper than that 
it's right. always going to kind of betray him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then he goes back home and he wants to reject his parents, but he can't. In fact, he ends up back there and then just gives himself up to this idea of obscurity and defeat in this sort of depressing ending. And so I think, yeah, he kind of has a much more level-headed idea of here are these young men who, whose ideas are bigger than, not, not bigger than them, that maybe their humanity will always get in the way of them being true nihilists. And that's mm-hmm. actually not a bad thing. That there's something deeply rooted in human feeling that we can't get rid of, and that's not a bad thing. And Bazarov himself can't get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a question, but what's that sound? Oh my goodness, it's the, it's the horns, the trumpets leading us into the Hall of Heroes, the part of the show Ooh. where we talk about the protagonist uh, from the, the book. What we're already doing? <laughs> yeah. I like how we're kind of always a little bit ahead of the sections here. <laughs> well, here's my question about Bazarov as our hero. D- do we think ultimately, it sounds like, Brandon, what you're arguing is that the story does play fair with him. Yeah, and that ultimately what it is, is it's Turgenev, a father figure. So here's where the author enters back into the story. It's it's a father playing very tenderly and gently with this character who would despise him, right? Mm. But who there's reasons to really sympathize with in the end because of his humanity, because of even these aspects that he can't escape. In other words, Bazarov wants to be the bad boy who can just blow up the world, but in the end, Bazarov can't be that guy. So, are you talking yourself because, into a higher view of this novel and its? I think so. Aspirations and achievements. Uh huh. I think so. <laughs> Jake, agree. And therefore, that ending paragraph is actually where his parents go and weep at his grave because mm-hmm. who knows their boy better than the parents, right? They remember him as a young boy, and of course, because of, I mean, if you think about Nikolai Nicholas's regime, mm-hmm. right, you can understand. You can understand why you would have a reactionary like nihilism in Russia, right? Right. Where you look at all the failures of people like Tolstoy and the other poets to actually change anything for the better, mm-hmm. right? So you have the serfs get freed, big deal. There's still oppression all over the place and everybody's dying. And so the only way to make that change, and this is before they had communist Russia to look back on. The only way to make that change is to just completely blow everything up and start again, right? Well, it especially makes sense when you do remember that it is, we are not talking about epistemological nihilism. We are talking about this political, political nihilism, nihilism. which is not something that in can the sense get that lost, that, I think. Yeah, and there's, it's not nihilism in the sense that they don't see justice as a good thing. They actually want justice, right? And it's hard for us as Americans to completely grasp what it's like to live in an unjust culture. Is it Brandon? Right. It just is. It's like I'm reading right now. Uh, uh, another thing that I'm reading is Voices from Chernobyl by Sve- Svetlana Alexandrovich, I think is her name. She won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And it's this oral history of what happened at Chernobyl. And it's fascinating. And what you really realize is just how the banality of it all seeps in and just keeps the people from ever doing anything about these oppressive regimes. And Mm -hmm. they just make everybody complicit without people really being like villainously complicit. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And uh, it's just, it's fascinating to see that. And then here, you know, if someone then goes off to Europe, gets their education and they see another possible world, and then they come back home, they realize the only way we're going to get this is by burning it all down. Mm -hmm. Right. By completely, completely destroying everything. 
Well, Jake, agree, disagree. Has Brandon given you a higher – do you want to give this novel now to all the little Bazarovs in your life so they can learn that it doesn't lead anywhere and you'll just end up on a tombstone and no one will remember you except for your parents? <laughs> <laughs> I can, can I speak to that? <laughs> sure. Yeah, go ahead, Brandon, please. <laughs> Jake's just like, it fails the C.S. Lewis test. I don't right. want to give That's it, to, I don't give it to all the Bazarovs because <laughs> it took us this long to come to a proper reading of the book. It's, yeah, it's, a, I, it's a good devil's need... advocate argument, Brandon, but it doesn't, it doesn't pass the C.S. Lewis test, which is, if you got a book to write, I don't know, here's an idea, make it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's an idea, have a point. <laughs> Yeah, the Steve Martin test. Yeah, the Steve Martin yeah. test. <laughs> uh, Here's a th idea. <laughs> I was entertained by this novel the first time. I don't know why it lost so much of its luster the second time. I don't know. Maybe it's just the first time I was waiting to see where it went and in a small degree of suspense. And and you hadn't read as much good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Brandon, do you have any accounting for why it lost its luster on subsequent <laughs> readings? I, I do think that it's just because I think there are two big reasons. One, because he's not, as you get older, you really just realize how little time you have. <laughs> and so you <laughs> yeah. just really wish that you could spend it on just the best things. I could be rereading right. Tolstoy again. Seriously. I yeah. mean, and, yeah. I don't, and I don't think that's a bad. Not at all. I think it's an inevitable part of growing old. Mm-hmm. And the second reason, I think, is because in the end, it was an aesthetic and uh, story failure for Turgenev to make Bazarov the main person of this book. Mm -hmm. Because inevitably, you have to make him, therefore, feel like the book, he deserves a book. Right. And he doesn't. And I don't think that, despite the fact that I do sympathize a bit with where he ends and all that stuff... I think it was just an aesthetic failure to make this story all about him because I don't see now that I'm older the need for it. So therefore, um, thinking about it from this perspective, I don't think that you need to write a book that to an old man, he's going to have to spend a lot of time arguing himself into why it was worth his time. Right. Into a young man might be just uh, dangerously close to feeding his ego. I agree with that. I'm a Bazarov and I'm going to die and nobody's going to understand how great I was. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree with that 100%. The only direction I would nudge it is I would say we are looking at this from with historical blinders on and it is possible that the Russia of his time needed to know, hey, there's a new kind of man out there. His name is Bazarov. And let me put some Exactly. But this could have all been done with a short story. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah, mean that. It doesn't mean we need to read it now. I think it's okay for some books to be of their time. It's why I don't have a lot of patience for Dickens, if I may be so bold, for Dickens eviscerating the British legal system in Bleak House. It's just like, it ain't my legal system, and I don't know how to extrapolate a larger... Yeah. Which, doesn't, which doesn't mean that there's not a place for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay, for, it's okay but, to be topical. Some, of the, some great works of art are topical. But we just have to realize that that's... So that's a decision yeah, to not be transcendent. Yeah. Or just, and, and, it's a it's a decision to be transcendent, depending on how it falls. It's kind of a knife's edge. There's I mean, a I way to be topical up. that is indelible. And there's right. a way to be talk topical that is you know, that's it. When the time has passed, it's over. Right. Yeah. 
And it's it's tough to have perspective. You know, you you it's hard. You can't just say I'm making a decision to be transcendent today. I mean, you can, but history has to be the judge of that. I just watched. You mentioned James Dean a, a bit ago. Brandon, and I just watched Rebel Without a Cause, and it's so lame and so creaky, yeah. and the acting is so bad, and James Dean is so terrible in it, and there's there's just nothing interesting about that movie, and it's not it's not a good evisceration of the modern teenager. That doesn't mean that people in 1955 maybe weren't intrigued or even edified by a drama saying this is what the modern disaffected teenager was like. And James Dean act, Dean's acting helped change acting in a powerful, potent, and good way that gave us modern acting that we like. But I don't have to go back and therefore pretend like I enjoy watching Rebel Without a Cause. <sighs> Yeah, and it also doesn't mean that if you like history and are interested in stories that are of their time, that it's wrong to enjoy fathers and sons. Right. Just put it in its place because it doesn't reach that level of it doesn't reach that level of transcendence. Yeah. And so Dickens is a is an interesting case study because I think you're you're absolutely right. There are certain ones of his stories, like I do not like hard times at mm-hmm. all. And that's because I think it is because if it's of a moment where you had these harsh boarding schools, and that's just not interesting to us anymore. But like, I think the one we're about to read, Tell of Two Cities or David Copperfield, I do think he managed to hit on something that transcended its time yeah. and is still valuable today. Well, for one thing, the, um, the, there's- Tell of Two Cities might be because he did the sort of Shakespearean, let's just tell a story that's completely foreign to my world. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think it's also true that the French Revolution- still matters it, you know it, yeah yeah and so you, you can we can we can talk about the goodness or badness of dickens portrayal of the french revolution but it's still intriguing to me to see a man well talk about these forces in and motion. war is just fundamental to our life we can't get away from it even mm-hmm. if we're living through the possibility of it now right that's absolutely right and so, people and war tends to be bigger than just one person, and so, therefore, war itself is a transcendent thing. You sound like the judge in Blood Meridian. Yeah. Before right, man, man, there was war. Here comes the bear, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's that sound? Oh, it's like a creepy organ ushering us into the villain's lair. Mm. <laughs> oh, boy. Who is the villain of this novel? Well, I don't think that Turgenev, if we just want to start there, thought of there being a villain in this novel. No, the villain is like the impassable barrier between fathers and sons or yeah, some such nonsense. So, I mean, it's Pavel's, uh, every character gets sympathy in this story. Yeah. And I do think that is to Turgenev's credit, but it's not something that's just unique to him. I think that pretty much every character gets sympathy in Tolstoy. Right. right. Maybe the closest we ever get to a real villain is Helena, was Pierre's wife. Mm. Yes, yes. But And her brother. And her brother. But even there, you get a little bit of sympathy because don't you see Anatole later scared in war or something? I think you see him get get his leg amputated or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And so there's some sympathy there. Yes, yes, yeah. Beautiful scene, right? Yeah. So Tolstoy finds sympathy. I think it must, I think it's part of the Russian character and part of just how hard it is to be a Russian mm-hmm. that they manage to see the good in just about everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what the world's <laughs> been saying now for <laughs> a month. Russian apologist over here. Yikes. Yeah. I just realized, yeah, 
So therefore, we should all be sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. Yeah. He's a good guy. Seems like a great guy. <sighs> Russians. This is before KGB, Russia. <laughs> hey, why don't we just say Putin is the villain of villain's lair? That's where I stand. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's why Putin, there's a- More like Poot. <laughs> yeah. More like Poot Sin. Yeah. Wow. Poot Sin. I just, Nailed him. You know, this road we're on, I'm not sure where it's going to end, but- if it's a train, I'm jumping off of it right about now. <laughs> well, if we end up losing World War Three, it's going to definitely be grounds for us all being in the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's that sound? <laughs> it's, it's like a cave or something going into the, <laughs> Is it? the the crawl way of secondary characters. Ooh, guess oh, what, guys? Wow. I'm going in a cave tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> brother, you and your caves. Sheesh, Brandon. You're supposed to come out of the cave. Read your Play-Doh. Hmm. Secondary characters. Throw away of secondary characters. I was trying to make Once you think again. that I was buffering. <sighs> Guys, what'd you think about those secondary <laughs> I think we've already talked about all this, right? Well, we didn't really talk much about Pavel. He's the main dude, the the nice boy. <sighs> Arkady. Yeah, Arkady's a little bit soft and he's a fanboy of Bazarov, but in the end, he's inevitably gonna be his dad. I thought, you know what? I think that's actually probably why I liked the novel the first time. I like the depictions. All the incidental depictions of the secondary characters are pretty insightful. And there's a lot of little fun glimpses into human nature and the relationship that the father is trying to maintain with the woman, with the girl, stuff like that. I thought was pretty well done. Again, it could have been its own little short story. It's interesting that in the end, he gives all characters, except for Bazarov, a fairly happy ending. Arkady gets the girl, and mm-hmm. they're happy. Arkady gets to realize that he's... It's a little bit like the story of Nikolai in War and Peace. He gets to grow up and realize that he's not the person he thought he was when he was young. Right. In fact, he is his dad, and that being his dad's not actually all that bad. And in that sense, <clears throat> it's a pretty common story of growing into manhood. When we're young, we all want to reject our fathers as hard as we can, only to realize as we get older, we realize why our dads were who they were. And so we become a variant of them. <laughs> you know what? You're, you're making me realize why I don't like realism as you describe this. Because what this book lacks is big dramatic scenes where Arkady makes those decisions that you're describing. And somebody like Turgenev would argue that that makes it more realistic that in fact in real life we just kind of drift from thing to thing and make slow realizations fair enough but that's not how we actually perceive reality we remember our lives in terms of big scenes and turning points yeah. and moments our our perception of our own existence is actually more dramatic than what a turgenev is giving us yeah in point of fact, so so Tolstoy will have, in his realism, he'll have Pierre go off and, you know, walk and have, be thinking all these thoughts and the stars are shining down on him and the moon, you know, and and, and it feels like a scene. He sees the comet. Yeah. yeah, the comet. That's what I'm trying to remember. It feels like a scene in a novel where a thing is happening that's dramatic. And in fact, while life has a lot of in-between bits, life does have big scenes. And that's what a quote-unquote realist like... Turgenev kind of denies us is is those those moments of drama that life actually does provide, or or at least in our perception and our memory, it does. Yeah. 
So thanks a lot, crawl way of secondary characters. Any other secondary So char- in other words, you can't actually be a realist if you're only focused on externals. It has to be that sort of free and direct style of Austin, where you can mix, meld the consciousness of character with plot. I think that's right. I mean, I would compare it to people will sometimes look at a movie that has very banal dialogue and they'll say this dialogue is realistic and i just look around me and i think like people are funny people are colorful people are interesting people are weird people accidentally reveal things about themselves that they don't mean to all the time any given conversation is so insane that it would feel overwritten and that's just like a conversation at coffee between the three of us you try and put that in a novel you're just like, whoa, back off with the dramatic fireworks. And that's just an average smoker's break at, at a work or, or whatever. Yep. And, and yet people think in order to be realistic, they need to sap the life out of things. And that's where I do have, have a lot of Everything be gray. Everybody's, this coffee today is not very warm. Right. No, this coffee today is not very warm. Yeah. The sky outside looks like it might rain. When will Godot come? Everybody has a look on their face that, you know, there's a deeper meaning there, but you have to read into it. Right. Whereas uh, in my old smokers breaks, the the guy, one of the smokers used to be a mortician. And so the other girl would be like, hey, it's Morty the mortician. Here comes Morty the mortician. Hey, Morty the mortician. And he'd be like, "Ah, I hope you die. And like, people are interesting. They're just really interesting. That's where I do have sympathy for somebody like Dickens, who's actually with his dramatic scenes and his grotesques gets closer to human nature in some ways, closer to the actual human experience, the ha- actual whole, whole darn human comedy than Mr. Urbane Turgenev. Yeah. And that's actually, that's interesting because I think it helps understand why Shakespeare is grander and better than like a Turgenev because Yes, some of his characters actually do at times seem like caricatures, mm-hmm. but it's through their extremes that they actually get at something universal and true. Right. And it turns out uh, there's a lot of moments in life where you meet people who seem like caricatures. Oh, yeah. What's that sound? It's it's a roadster, like a James Dean car driving, twisting and turning, bringing us to twists and turns. The part of the... <laughs> The part of the novel. <laughs> the part of the <laughs> hey, Nathan, it was yeah. a twist when they had the duel yeah. and Bazarov shot Pavel. And then yeah. there's another twist when Bazarov died. Okay. It's almost like not that much happens in this book. <laughs> yeah. It was a, the, the first twist was they visited a house. The second twist was they visited another house. <laughs> But hey, I bet close reads could get like 16 episodes. <laughs> <of this thing. laughs> we, love, uh, we love our Guys, bro- I'm friends. sorry. Like I am trying hard not to check out. I just did not care about this novel at all. And I read it like four months ago. I well, just, I think it's, it's, I think it's fair to be nothing honest. Nothing worth. It just wasn't. Remembering even about it was, as far wasn't as a page, I was concerned. Wasn't a page turner. Well, I don't know. All right. Here's, here's a question for you, Brandon. I've read like 20 books since then. You know what was interesting? Yeah. And what I did enjoy, Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, talk about we'll look that. look for a big meaty episode on that. Oh, yeah. That's going to be yeah. month, right? That's going to be big. There's going to be fat dripping off of that meat. It's going to mm. be delicious. Medium know, rare. Medium. <laughs> yeah. Medium <laughs> rare. <laughs> it, I don't know. 
How would you compare the level of incident in this novel, Brandon, to its contemporaries? Are, are, are we right to mock it for nothing happening or actually like a Gogol or a, I mean, I guess Dostoevsky, I mean, if you think, a ton happens. <laughs> think about the fact that, yeah, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, those, those are all the books that are kind of surrounding this Dickens, just full of incident. Well, even Flaubert and Henry James and all his yeah. bogus realist contemporaries. I mean, it really, uh, defenders of Turgenev say that he was more, his characters always came to him first, and so he's more interested in character than he was plot. Right. So. Boy. There you go. I, anything else we can... If only I was interested in his characters. Yeah, and I do think that if... That, yeah, if only. Yep. Or you've made a I case. Think, you've done a good job. If only I didn't think that there were other authors out there who had the same type of character that I would rather be reading. Yeah, it would be one so. thing if this book had the market cornered on fathers and sons. But yeah. it turns out every book ever written is about fathers and sons. I mean, just read the last bit of War and Peace with the relationship between the Pierre and Prince Andre's boy. Yeah, no, it's great. Or, or read, you know, East of Eden. You could get a lot more fathers and sons oh, yeah. out of East of Eden in Hamlet. terms of booking <laughs> classics. East of Eden could have been called and Fathers and Sons. Fathers and Sons and One Really Evil Prostitute. That's what he should have called it. Yeah. Fathers and Sons and... Yeah, I wouldn't finish that sentence. <sighs> well, sorry, folks. I think that's all we're getting out of <laughs> Twists and Turns. But I'm glad that you could join us here in Twists and Turns. <laughs> oh, I hear the sound of, like, a Victorian salon. What's that sound? It's the sound of a Victorian-style salon. The salon of style. Yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. We're entering into the salon of style. <sighs> <laughs> <What'd you get? laughs> this episode's starting to feel as belabored as this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the belaboredness of this episode, though. <laughs> Turns out when you're hanging out with actual colorful characters who you like, it can be pretty fun. So, <laughs> what do you guys think about the style? Can it? <laughs> yeah. No, this the episode's style. Awesome. This is the greatest episode of the booking. Wow. <laughs> we suck. <laughs> <laughs> there is a t-shirt. Wow. We wow, suck. we suck. <laughs> the booking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey i liked the style let me give you guys you an are example. doing a great job i just want to tell you guys you're doing a great job of muscling through and making this interesting and co- manufacturing things to talk about about something that i find impossible to care about hey there's no manufacturing <laughs> well, i water. applaud you both <laughs> the fuel the fuel's beginning to run out <laughs> i feel like <laughs> I've been pressing the gas the whole time. We're starting to sputter. <laughs> well, when you start sputtering, count on the third guy to show up and make meta commentary on all of it. Thank you. That's about all I can do. <laughs> the only value I can bring right now. Hey. Because, yeah, again, we've kind of touched on this, but the style was good. <laughs> it's fine. It's a realistic style. It's pretty straightforward, but Turgenev's tone comes through and his tone is... What'd you say? It's kind of urbane and perceptive. Yeah, sturdy, kind of stately, not getting in its yeah. own way too much. Yeah, he's a good writer. He just yeah. should have something interesting to say or an interesting story worth telling. And I've never given him a shot. I've never tried to probably be too stuff. hard on this, but I didn't mind it all that much. But I didn't love it and I don't care about yeah. it. So I, I would be interested to read some of the short stories in his whatever it's called. Yeah, like, I, sketches I did. of the peasantry or whatever. 
You have read that? I have that marked down as something I want to get because I'd really like to give it a shot. Have any of his other novels continued to have any kind of currency culturally like i I, not really i mean there's the one that they call his masterpiece but i forget what that was now that's not fathers and sons uh some i mean according to the person who wrote the introduction to our copy it is but huh what's his masterpiece why didn't we read that could have gotten oh man three episodes worth of content out of that Uh, maybe if uh, a provincial lady provincial lady no it's a play never mind here's his novels uh Home of the gentry, gentry? I don't know. Virgin Soil? I think it must be. It may be that volume of short stories, actually, a sportsman sketches. That's what it's called. Yeah, I would oh. like to read that, actually. I think it's First Love, but it's a shorter work. Hmm. According to this blogger, he ranks Sturgenev's novels like this. Torrents of Spring, A Nest of the Gentry, with Fathers and Sons in third place, followed by Virgin Soil and Smoke... And on the eve in Rudin. And I guess he's read a lot. I guess he's read all seven of. Hmm. Well, the only one that's even made Brandon read it in all of his wanderings is Fathers and Sons, sounds like, right? Yeah. So. Would you like to hear this guy's summary of each of these uh, first four novels? I bet it'll would be Would we? Yeah. Heck yeah. All right, here we go. While you're reading that, I'm going to find a plug. In order of how they might deeply affect a reader, the novel should be ranked thus. <laughs> number one tor- yeah i know <laughs> this guy sounds awesome yeah this this guy is 100 pages.wordpress.com a useful fiction number one torrents of spring i think this is the one that hurts the most knowing that sonnen does it that he falls victim does mm. himself in or otherwise jumps off a precipice each step in this novel inevitably hurts each twist is the twist of a rusty crooked knife <laughs> Turgenev is for, in- a work of literature Turgenev is enjoying this, it would seem, and so are we. By the end of this, we are bruised but alive. Such, one supposes, is life. Even if we don't fall victim in such a way to love. Okay, there we go. Number two, a nest of the... A nest of the gentry. It's hard not to feel a wallop of sympathy for Turgenev's hapless heroes. This guy, Lavritsky, really gets a going over from... This is written as a poem. Really gets it going over from life, women, love. Each of the three seem to be things that happen to men as far as Turgenev's <laughs> protagonists are concerned. Wait, so life, women, and love all happen to men? Each of the three seem to be things that happen to men as far as Turgenev's protagonists are concerned. So they deserve to suffer. But how they suffer. <laughs> it seems that the loss of control, volition, agency, is the key ingredient for love. Only when you're well and truly caught are you in love. Any love you initiate, control, and oversee isn't really love at all. Learning to appreciate it always happens too late. And that's the end of that poem, explaining and describing. I mean, I'm just glad that somebody Um, is writing about how men interact with life, women, and love. Yes. Finally. Number three. Well, we need to know what he says about fathers and sons here, or she. I'm not sure, actually. Fathers and sons. There are women in this, too. (laughs) <laughs> hence, hence the proper, if less well-known English title, Fathers and Children. Uh-huh. But it is the boys who take center stage, and it is very much the boys who make a mess of things and of themselves, thereby garnering the reader's sympathy. But unlike a character such as Rudin and Rudin, we do feel that Bazarov really could have done something. Though what really does anyone do? But alas, 
I think it's because Bazarov comes to an untimely end that makes this novel so sad. The death of Rudin is a throwaway comment. The death of Bazarov is truly tragic because he had more or less learned to live his life and left behind the juvenile concerns. Obsession with newfangled notions, conceptions of society, the future progress, the lack thereof, and all of that kind of thing that dominate 19th century Russian intellectual life and very much distract us from the substance of one's life. That's so no doubt this person thinks Bazarov is the hero. He is the Ubermensch who is... Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. All right, I, I don't really want to read this next one. I will if you want me to, though. It makes <laughs> no, reference think... to Dostoevsky, so... Oh, uh, well, can we at least hear the Dostoevsky reference real quick? Virgin Soil. If ideas and revolution and so on is one avenue that presents itself to us, living your life is more akin to falling in love. It's always about that particular morass with Turgenev. The other morass, the kind of Dostoevsky and quagmire of the Brothers Karamazov and its 20th century manifestations, where one worries about ideas and society and evil, all of that kind of serious stuff, are very much secondary. One feels that Turgenev is feeling obliged in this novel to give ideas, politics, and revolution more space than he really thinks justified. Hmm. I want him to get back to characters properly ripping themselves to shreds. <laughs> about the fate of the people, the, f- the future of society, poverty, progress, morality, all that kind of thing seems unimportant in comparison. <laughs> Batman? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the only way to talk about <laughs> Turgenev. 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 This, this is the way that yeah. <laughs> well, anything else to say here in the salon of style, gentlemen? <laughs> no. Hey, I just want to read some, a quote because I, I actually think his style is quite good if we're giving the devil his due. So here's, here's, here's one of the, an example of the kind of thing that he does that I like. Exactly. It proves nothing, repeated Arcady, with the assur- assurance of an experienced chess player who having foreseen an apparently dangerous move on the part of his adversary is not in the least put out by it. I mean, that just sums up every stupid young man who thinks he's made a point that you ever met. And there's a lot of nice little nuggets like that in the book. So I think this guy uh, has a good style. <sighs> and that, well, what is that glorious heavenly music? That angelic choir? Oh, it's the sound that's ushering us into the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning. Welcome to the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning, guys. Got hey, <laughs> hey, yeah. You got any other thoughts about the deeper meaning of? It feels like maybe this whole podcast is a haven upon of reflection upon deeper meaning. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that I've touched on all of my reflections on the deeper meaning here when I was coming to my realization earlier about some of the values of this. So, Brandon, you are your microphone is very quiet or something. Can you hear me now? Oh yeah, if you're just talking right. to it, that's good. Yeah. Jake, you got any further reflections upon deeper meaning? No. (laughs) Well, all right. Brandon, how many serfs, uh, what do serfs have? How many Cossacks out of 12 do you give to Ivan Turgenev's fathers and sons? Out of 12? Mm Mm-hmm. Nine. Nine out of 12, huh? Yeah. After all that. I didn't hate it. What would that give? Like, a, what percentage would that be? Maybe like an eight. Let's do an eight. Yeah, I think eight it feels more. Eight feels right. Yeah, it just feels right. It I'll, feels I'll give right. it an eight as well. I think that's a fair ranking. It's a fine old piece of work, sturdy. I suppose if you think you might be interested in it, then you probably will enjoy it well enough. But Jake, how many Cossacks out of 12? Uh, eight. Eight. Oh, wow. You hit a lot higher than I thought you were going to. You know what? I'm going to delete mine down to seven. 
just to. I'm going to delete mine down to two. Yeah. This book sucks. Then I'm in negative one. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> well, guys, the only thing left to do is to shout out our good friends, Les Patrons. And uh, we might want to. My charger's not working. I've got 9% battery life. So let's see if we Yikes. make it all the way through. Okay. If Brandon dies, then. Because I think I might have to go to Best Buy and figure out what's going on after this. If Brandon dies, folks, then, you know, life is meaningless and people die. I am the Bazarov of this podcast. All right. Let's say what this person's name. What's that? I said, I am the Bazarov of this podcast. I am the most likely to die in obscurity. Yeah. In a cave somewhere. Probably. That's true. Tomorrow, maybe. Tomorrow, maybe. (sighs) All right. Can you just make these people's names sound Russian? Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. I can't speak in Russian. (laughs) (laughs) It was worth it for that. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Your people wait a whole month for this. (laughs) The artful Anthony Dodger and bootstrap Betsy, of course. Frankenstein. Oh, no. Little Anthony's cigar store. Dracula. (laughs) Guys, people are waiting a month. All right, let me let me give you a good one. What what cheese do you think this person's like? The immortal Chelsea E. Is that me? Yeah, sure. Cheddar. Cheddar. <laughs> no, right. she's a brie. She's a brie. Uh, Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Monterey Jack. Ah, yes, excellent oh, choice. Yeah, you better believe it. Yeah. Lily of the Valley. <laughs> like how enthusiastic I was about that. Um, <laughs> some blue cheese. Rangers bit there. Blue cheese. Yeah. Blue cheese. Lily of the Valley. A lot of people don't like you, but. Some people do. <laughs> You're good on salad. Andrew Nestor. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true of Lily. It is true of blue cheese. Andrew Nestor, the lovebirds. Uh, Asiago. Mm, yummy. Mm. The Keith Master. Parmesan. <laughs> You're so confident and dramatic about the, the lamest and most boring of cheeses. That was the Keith Master. But not Master. the lamest and most boring of men. No, 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 not at all. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Bocconcini. Bocconcini. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Barata. <laughs> I see where we are. <laughs> Jay and Katie, we might cool. have the same list. <laughs> Camembert. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, Jay and Katie, who are cold, love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. We're giving them Camembert and not some nice Wisconsin cheddar. I guess they get nice Wisconsin cheddar anytime they want it. We already used yeah. cheddar. Yeah, true. Yeah. Cheese curds. Cheese curds. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Colby. Consul Prime Adam? Colby Jack Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of Colby was Jake talking about? There's Colby and there's Colby Jack. Yeah, that's true. Consul Prime Adam. Cold Pack. <laughs> Cold Pack Cheese is a combination of two or more types of fresh and aged natural cheeses, sometimes consisting of a Swiss and cheddar mix. They're often soft, creamy, and spreadable. They're common for holiday common parties for holiday and come in tubs, balls, tubs, logs, and other balls, packages. Other packages. Mm. Where was I? Who did I just say? Nathan, not me. I bet Jake and I can come up with the same cheese. One. If we know how to pronounce it. Three. Cotija. Cotija. The next couple are really exciting. I hope that we have great people. Ryan, the Red Avenger, Judith, the Ladies of Justice, of course. Cottage cheese. Of course. DJ Sammy D. Cream cheese. Benny and Danny Tiberius. A mental. A mental? People think of Swiss cheese. A mental. They're thinking of a mental. Apparently that's Swiss cheese. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Farmers. 
farmers. Professor and Lady X? It's made when cottage cheese is squeezed to remove the extra moisture, Nathan, and then it can be rolled in herbs and smoked meats. Well, the first person that thought, I'm going to take some cottage cheese and squeeze it was an idiot. So, <laughs> so there, because that's just roasting. Where were we? warning that my battery is low. I got 6%. All okay, right, we're, we're going to do it. We're, we're, we're going to do it. Did I say Professor and Lady X? Feta. I think so. Lavender's green, Dylan Dylan? Mozzarella. mozzarella. No constrictor? Gorgonzola. Gorgonzola. Marichip? Gouda. Gouda. The fair and fragrant maiden Chloe? Gruyere. Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, the pursuit of cheese. And Halloumi. Halloumi, yeah. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger? Havarti. Hermione. <laughs> Havarti <laughs> Patel. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Jarlsberg. Return of the Jedi. Limburger, you stink, dude. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no sorry, man. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Ooh, Mascarpone. Mascarpone. Timothy, the writer of At Dawn. We said that one, so, and we said that one. Munster. Ooh, the Munster. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. Eric and Kate, the Camp Champ Kings, who are warm and love bees. Noif Chattel. Noif. Mm, glad you had to say that, not me. Maddie, Maddie, Matt, man. Paneer. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Pepperjack. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. And Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light. Provolone. Provolone. Cold Steel Cody. Ricotta. And Ricotta. Jacqueline, the Librarian, Barbarian. Romano. John Babadilla, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate. String. <laughs> saxophone Alex. Uh-oh, Swiss. Uh-oh. The other saxophone uh, Alex and Dubstep Debbie. De- Debbie. <laughs> Dubstep Debbie. <laughs> Dubstep Debbie. Dubstep Debbie. Dubstep American, Dobby, sir. American. Ooh, the worst cheese of all. Ryan the Terror of Texas and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who are no longer stuck in the cold, but please do send cheese. How was this not on the other list? Gorgonzola. It, wasn't it? I'm sure it was. So. Ben Solo and Kyla Wren. Bababel. Baba Babooey. John the Cosmic King of Chaos. Rockefort. Matthew the Mind Flayer. Manchigo. Manchigo. Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Stilton. Flight of the Valerie. La Gruyere. I think that's exactly how it's pronounced. Thor Ragnajosh. Formdumber. Stephen Dot Dot Dot. Baye de Belloc. Pegalodon. Pecorino. Christopher the Flower Hulk. Borson. Lady of the Crystal Lake. Grana Pandano. Ian, the Death of Miriam, Lord of Death. Grana. Emily Nightshade, the Haunter of Dreams. Idam. All about the Benjamins, baby. Scamorza. Mysterious Phantom. Cascavel. Jeremy the Dark Hooded, Lord of Death, and his brooding bride, Maya! Maya! Fromage à raclette. Remains of the J? Chevre? Abram, the puller of teeth. Port Salute. Port Salute. <laughs> and La Morte de Trenton. Queso Blanco. Queso Blanco. There you go. Thank you, Jake. Misa Blanco to Sablanco. Well, gentlemen, it's been another episode of The Bookening. <laughs> it has been. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Any final thoughts for the listeners? Thanks for making it uh, this far. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised I made it this far. I don't think this episode battery. was all that bad. I think yeah. it the episode was, worse. the episode was us making the most out of a bad situation. Right. We have definitely had worse episodes. But sometimes we've made the least out of a good situation, but in this Indeed. case, we were making the most, most out of, of most a bad of last year, right? 
Yeah, but we're out of the doldrums. Uh, we're out of the shallows now, or whatever that lady. I Gaga felt like is. when this episode was good, it was real good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that is behind us now. So maybe we should call it a day. Goodbye. I had the Goodbye. shores of world of Dickens land ho. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Land ho. <laughs> Land ho. <Ahoy. laughs>